morning's reading, uh, we will continue our series in Mark, but as it's the beginning of Lent, we will move forward a little bit to Mark chapter 8. We will look at verses 27 to 33 together. Carl Cox is our reader this morning, but I spoke with him yesterday morning. He uh, has a family illness and is unable to be here, and it is reflective of the many things that we have going on in our hearts, in our lives as individuals and families in a city. Uh, There's a lot that is changing and a lot unsettled, but we find refuge in a God who is unchanging in the strong foundation of his word. As we worship the Lord together, we do so through studying his word. Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 27. I'm going to read it from my Bible. My eyes work better up close. And Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter, and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind on the things not on the things of God, but on the things of man. Please join me in this call to resp- in response. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, your character that is unchanging, your mercy that is new every morning. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be restored, renewed, refocused, resurrected by the power of your grace and your revelation. Lord, we ask this morning as we sit under the authority of your word that you would give us eyes to see, you would give us hearts to receive and ears to hear. Our desire, Lord, is not to just be inspired, but truly transformed. We pray, Lord, that you would meet us where we are and by the power of the gospel, take us to where you've called us to be. Lord Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us, we pray. Amen. Please keep your, uh, your Bibles on or open in front of you as we look at the Gospel of Mark this morning. We will be in several other passages of Scripture. Uh, most of them will be printed on the screen behind us. I've been very encouraged and even grateful to see individuals and groups of people in our congregation that are going deeper in relationship with one another and in the study of God's Word. It has been very encouraging to me that people have looked at this season of inconvenience uh, and misscheduling as opportunity to grow deeper. I want to pour gas gasoline on that flame in your hearts and in this church. Let's keep doing it together. If you're with us this morning and you're curious about Christianity, you don't know what it means to really follow Jesus and understand the gospel, we, or you're praying for someone who does, uh, who is on that journey, we want to offer this alpha class to you. The information is in the bulletin. It will begin next Tuesday night, and it's online and a great opportunity for people to come to know who Christ is. 
Uh, Pastor Octavius, we're humbled to have you with us, you and your family, and to partner with you all. Thank you for being here and for sharing what God is doing. It's hard to articulate the encouragement that you are to us. Uh, We come off of a hard week here as a city. Uh, We had two snowstorms, which doesn't happen once uh, ever. Uh, We lost power and water. And and personally, I, I was talking to my wife last night, I realized why bears hibernate in the wintertime, right? If I had the option of just eating a lot of food and going to hide under like 19 blankets and just emerged when things warmed up, I would have done it, right? Maybe a little grumpy. But when I saw your presentation in Sunday school and saw the sacrifice with which you all have served our Savior, seeing the picture of your house after the earthquake, I was quickly convicted and led to repentance. We're very grateful for your faithfulness. And you don't know the power of the seeds that you sow in the gospel in the hearts of our community. And we thank you for your partnership. We're grateful to the Lord. And uh, we're going to study a a very potent revelation of who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus is a little more aggressive in this passage than he normally is. The Gospel of Mark, you'll remember, was written by John Mark. He was Peter's scribe. The Apostle Peter uh, used John Mark to write this, and and many people think that his sermon in Acts chapter 10 in the house of Cornelius is actually the outline of the Gospel of Mark. And Cornelius was, of course, a Roman centurion. uh, Excuse me, he was a leader of the synagogue in... um, in Joppa. And that's where Peter's outline of this sermon came. Oh, he was a Roman centurion. Forgive me for the confusion there. Uh, All through the gospel of Mark, people are trying to discern who Jesus is, the Son of God. He's revealed early on, uh, as, as, as early as Verse 1 of chapter 1, Jesus, the gospel of the, uh, the beginning of the gospel of the Son of God. No one fully understands that throughout the whole gospel except for demons until we get to after the cross in chapter 15, verse 39. It's a Roman centurion again uh, who sees Jesus die and says, surely this was the Son of God. All through this gospel, uh, the disciples are learning and discovering who God is. The picture of gr- God's gracious patience in revealing himself in his people understanding who he's revealed himself to be. This morning is a profound and intense invitation for intimate relationship with who Jesus is. Uh, We live in a pluralistic society, a pluralistic culture, where it seems everybody has an opinion on who Jesus is. There's lots of different perspectives. Uh, Many people think Jesus is just a good teacher. A lot of people believe that Jesus was a man, a good man that lived a long time ago. Many people now, you hear more and more, Jesus was a teacher that understood social justice. There's lots of different perspectives on on who Christ is. And we really need to be honest and have integrity in who we believe Jesus is. This passage opens up again freshly, this invitation, uh, do you know who Jesus Christ is? I was talking to a man a few months ago about who Jesus is. And he said he believed that Jesus is a good teacher. He was a good teacher. I said, he, he was a good teacher. Was he more than that? He said, no, I believe Jesus was only a good teacher. And I said, well, then what do you do with one third of his teaching? He said, what do you mean? I said, one third of Jesus' teaching was about how Jesus is God and that he's got to suffer and die to take away the sins of the world. Is that part good teaching? He said, no, the other two thirds, that's good teaching. So, okay. <laughs> It's not very consistent, but we're often like that in many different areas of how we understand Scripture and who Christ reveals himself to be. It's not a cafeteria plan. You can't have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, 
little gado gado, mix it all together, vada ving, vada boom, you got a faith. That's called syncretism. It leads to sorrow. And Jesus teaches in this context, it says in the passage, you see in verse 27, it says, Jesus went on his way with his disciples. He was teaching his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, this was a pluralistic area. The geography is intentional, and it's important for two reasons. First, geographically, it symbolizes in Mark Jesus' journey to Jerusalem to suffer and die. It is showing that Jesus is physically moving to the cross. That is significant because it's the point of Jesus' life, that he could come and die as a ransom for our sins. But it is also important because of the cultural nature of the region. It was pluralistic. On the one hand, uh, Caesarea Philippi was known as a, uh, a cultural center of worship for the god of Pan. That's right, the god of Pan. <laughs> You're like, oh yes, I've never heard of him. It means nothing. Uh, Pan was the, the god of the area of the god of shepherd, the god of shepherding. And so three centuries before Christ came and two centuries or three centuries after he came, this region was known as one where people would travel to this fountain and they would worship the god of Pan. But also, Caesarea Philippi uh, was known for its emperor worship, its occult worship. It was started by a Caesar. And it was started as a village and tons of people who retired from the Roman military moved to Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi. And so you had this syncretism. On the one hand, there was a worship of a shepherding God. On the other hand, you had the worship of the emperor, of political power. And here in this place, Jesus comes as the true shepherd that comes to lay his life down for the sheep with more authority and more power than any political power, any empire of any emperor of any day of any time in all of history. This is the one who comes and he reveals himself in the midst of this pluralistic society. And look down with me. He asked his disciples in this place, who do people say that I am? Now, how would you answer that question? It's easier to answer the question of what other people would say than it is what you actually say. And Jesus goes directly for the hearts of his disciple by using an indirect question. Who do people say that I am? And they answer him. They say, most people say, you're, you're a man. John the Baptist. Others say, you're Elijah. Others say that you're a prophet. And it's interesting, if you look down at the passage, it, it says that in Jesus asked them. In this word, he asked them. It's actually a verb in the uh, indicative, not in the indicative sense, uh, excuse me. It's actually in the imperfect tense. And what that means is that he kept on asking. And Jesus, he gets up in their grill a little bit. Well, who do you say that I am? They kind of diverge the question when he's talking about uh, who do others say? Merely a man. And he says, who do you say that I am? No, who do you say that I am? And as we study this passage, we have to be able to answer that question ourselves. I find a helpful grid being from C.S. Lewis. He has a trifecta. Uh, you either understand Jesus as Lord, liar, or lunatic. Now, I'll add a third L on there. Uh, he could be legend. And I'm not the one who alliterated this first. It was actually C.S. Lewis. So don't judge me. First of all, who do you say Jesus is? Is he, is he Lord? 
if Jesus reveals himself as Lord over everything, then he is Lord over all things. He can't be Lord over some things. Many of us will say, yes, we believe Jesus is Lord, but we just use him like a genie. We don't allow him to be Lord over all of our lives. We allow him to be Lord over some of our lives, specifically when we need help on a test or when we need help in a relationship or when we need help in our jobs or when we need help in our city. We believe Jesus is all powerful and you are Lord, but I'm just gonna rub you like a genie lamp when I need you. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. There's no gray area. But maybe the other option is that he's a liar. Maybe Jesus claimed to be Lord. He taught that he was Lord, that he was God, but he wasn't in fact that at all. He was just trying to deceive us. Many people believe that Jesus was just a liar. They don't trust his teaching. Do you? A third option is that he could have been a lunatic. He could have actually taught that he was Lord. He could have actually taught that he was God. But in fact, even though he believed it, he was not God. And C.S. Lewis gets a little bit humorous when he describes this place. He says, Jesus was either a lunatic on the level of someone who believes they are a poached egg, or he was not Lord at all, or he was actually Lord. He could have been crazy. If you know anybody that comes to you and tells you that they are God in the flesh, your first reaction is going to pat them on, pat them on the back and say, I can help you. You can find help for this. Very few of us are just going to bow our knee. Jesus claimed to be Lord. Was he just crazy? The fourth option would be that he could have been legend. And by legend, I mean uh, that uh, a lot of sociologists will like to say that, that cultures will construct deities. They will construct gods that is just part of our evolution. And so our, our society will, will say if he can be constructed, then he can also be deconstructed. That he was just a legend and he didn't really exist. But these are uh, four options that are a helpful grid for us. And we can take them down systematically if we need to. History does the, uh, uh, takes down legend uh, very simply. There's more than enough evidence that Jesus existed historically as a person, that he died historically. We have Roman records of it. And we have evidence that he rose from the grave. And that's a whole philosophical discussion we'll engage more as Easter comes. But he wasn't a legend. But was he a lunatic, believing that he was God and he wasn't? Was Jesus a liar or is Jesus actually Lord? Who do you say that Jesus is? He gets intense. Who do you say that I am? Not just with your lips, but with your life. The disciples had asked one another this question. If you go back to Mark chapter 4, uh, in the, in the, when they were in the boat with Jesus during the storm and the, and the wind and the waves were raging and they woke Jesus up and they said, Jesus, don't you care that we're getting ready to die? And Jesus looked at the disciples and then he spoke to the storm. He said, be still. In the wind and the waves, they stopped and it was calm. And the disciples looked at one another and said, who is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him. And now this man who is God looks at the disciples. Who do you say that I am? Look at Peter's response. 
Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, which he did quite often, and I identify with Peter because a lot of times he put his foot in his mouth. I'm glad to not have a table for one on that, okay? Jesus doesn't call perfect people to follow him. Imperfect people that are just willing and open to receive his grace, mercy, forgiveness, and his long-suffering love. Peter says, you are the Christ. That word in Greek, Christos, it's a transliteration of the Hebrew word, Messiah. You are the Christ. And, and, and Peter is standing on solid foundation. He is he's actually finding refuge in Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would come. He's kind of right. Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the long-anticipated king that would overthrow all rulers and authorities and powers and peoples. But as much as Christ is going to come in his state of exaltation, in his incarnation, he revealed himself in a state of humiliation. And what Peter had done, so many of us do. We align the teaching and the person of Jesus with the powers of our world. And we do this by, by baptizing secular worldviews, even with Scripture. Look at this passage that comes from Daniel chapter 7. This is a teaching on the Messiah that the community that Peter would have grown up in would have held tightly onto. The Son of Man, this teaching, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. He came uh, to the Ancient of Days. It was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and language should serve him. Did you hear that? Gave him the glory and a kingdom. Look, that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This was the bedrock of the anticipation of the Messiah. Jesus, you are the Christ. And he was right. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody this. Because Jesus is more than that. Yes, Jesus is, is more exalted and more powerful than anyone in this room can imagine. Yes, Jesus is greater than any emperor. Yes, his kingdom is greater than any empire. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. But he's more. He didn't come in power the first time. He came in a state of humility. Jesus says, don't go telling everybody that I'm the Messiah. Look what he did. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. And the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, he would kill him. And after three days, he would rise again. <laughs> what? Could you imagine the confusion that Peter had? The excitement of all of his revolutionary ambitions, and we know he had him. He's the one that pulled out the sword when they came to take him on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Peter wanted a hostile takeover. Peter wanted the Roman oppressors to pay. Peter wanted the kingdom of God to come in power. That's a good ambition, but completely misdirected when it's synchronized with the, with the philosophy. <laughs> Golly, did you hear that? No, I wasn't. That was just mumbling my words. Sorry about that. When we syncretize scriptural teaching with the powers of our world, we miss truly knowing Jesus personally, even on the deepest level of our need. 
we have a greater need than the oppressive powers of empires and political parties and economic systems be overthrown. This is why Jesus teaches that he must suffer and be betrayed. This isn't crazy talk. It's the first time in Mark that Jesus really intensely reveals himself. But he does it again. When you get to Mark chapter 10, he has another conversation with the disciples. And the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest, and Jesus teaches them in verses 35 to 45. He said, look, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Peter was right in claiming Daniel 7 as the bedrock of his understanding of Jesus as Messiah. And we should too. That's exactly what the angels told the apostles when they saw Jesus ascend into heaven. The same way that you saw him going off in clouds, he's going to come back in clouds. The same way the Son of Man's revealed in Daniel 7, it's going to happen. But we can't do that at the expense of the reason Jesus came in the incarnation to live the perfect life. He's not only the fullness of all the promises of King of Kings, he's also the fullness of the suffering servant. Isaiah 53. Look at these verses. This is also Old Testament prophecy of Jesus the King. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we were healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he had opened, he opened not his mouth. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus is the fullness of the Son of Man in Daniel 7, but he's also the fullness of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Now Peter would have none of this. Peter was so aligned with an empire and an imperial power worldview that he couldn't receive the revelation of Jesus. And this is what he says. It says that, look at this, he said this plainly, Jesus did, and Peter took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke Jesus. Peter began to rebuke Jesus, putting him in his place. Uh, we're reading a book over uh, Lent, Jesus the King, the Son of God, the understanding of the life and death of the Son of God by Tim Keller. I hope that you all have gotten this, saw it in our newsletters, that we're reading this as, as a uh, as a church. And in chapter 8, there's great reasons that Dr. Keller articulates why Jesus had to come and die. It says it right here. Jesus said that he must suffer these things. He must die. And Dr. Keller uses um, three different divine necessities of Christ. He talks about how uh, there were personal reasons, legal reasons, and cosmic reasons. They're worth reading. Uh, but I am going to draw our attention to the biblical reasons, the covenantal reasons that Jesus had to come and die. Namely, that we need a Savior. We have a sin problem that only Jesus can do something about. And before we throw stones at Peter, I think we need to identify with him. Would you believe me that we do the same thing that Peter did when Peter rebukes Jesus, when we align Jesus or use Jesus 
to reinforce our economic, our political, or our social worldviews. That we baptize our faith, our Christian faith, our understanding of Jesus with a greater, more influential view in our lives. Peter's doing it on a political level. We do it on an economic level or a social level and even a personal level. We try to tell Jesus who he really is and we use it. Here's what that looks like. What it looks like in our lives is that we reject the king and the teaching of the kingdom and replace it with the ethics of our culture. So we talk bad about people. We call people evil. We talk behind their backs or we judge them or throw stones at them when Jesus teaches us that we're called to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us. Jesus teaches that we find our life when we give it away. But if we have a worldview that we baptize with Jesus, or we baptize Jesus with our worldview, then we villainize people and we poison society and systems with sowing seeds of bitterness, anger, and hate. Jesus came in a state of humiliation. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus saw a bigger issue that needed to be addressed first before he comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will. That is, he must suffer and die so that we could be reconciled to him, so that we could know the Father's love for us. You see, Peter had heard John the Baptist say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But he had taken that teaching and put it on a back burner because of a more perceived urgency in his life. Jesus is patient. Jesus is gracious. And he says, who do you say that I am? And when we align ourselves with Peter and misalign our faith more with the culture than we do our king, Jesus graciously reveals who he is. And he said, this is why I have come to die. Jesus had been tempted to take a shortcut when he was in the wilderness. He could have avoided the cross. If you go back to Matthew chapter 4, verses 19 to 20, then what you see is Satan tempting Jesus. Bow your knee to me, and you can have all the power over all of this present age. You can have the prominence without the cross. You can have the power without the suffering. And Jesus rebuked Satan with the power of God's word. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 4, 19 and 20. And in the same way that he resisted the devil in the wilderness, he rebukes Satan here. This is what Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. The temptation to remove the suffering, to remove the cross, and just go after the power and the prestige. God leaves no room for it. This is why he came to die. Then he challenges Peter. He says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And the challenge of Jesus 
leads us to be challenged with questions of application. First of all, do you really know Jesus as Lord? Is he a liar, a lunatic, or a legend in your life? Who do you say that he is? If he is Lord at all, then he must be Lord of all in your life. Is he Lord of your finances? Is he Lord of your relationship? Is he uh, all your relationships? Is he Lord of your dating life? Is he Lord over your vocation and your job? Is he Lord over how you steward your money? Is he Lord over how you forgive or don't forgive? Is he Lord of how you navigate your mental and emotional health? Jesus is Lord. And if you're like me, then you say, no, he's not. I haven't been 100% faithful. <laughs> I don't have it in me to follow Jesus perfectly as king. I need something greater. Second question, do you know Jesus not just as Lord, but also Savior? Next slide. Do you see Jesus as exalted and in the humble state? That should all be one question. Just go ahead and put them all on there if you don't mind. We really need to understand Jesus as Lord and Savior. He's not just the Lord of all history, but he's going to be Lord of you and me as Savior when we can confess our sins and receive his grace. We can't settle with knowing Jesus partially. We have to know Jesus personally. And if your faith is in Christ, this is the last point of application, then disciples' lives are designed to be different. We are to have the mind of Christ, as Paul in Philippians 2. We're to set our minds on heavenly realities, on the things of Christ, Colossians 3, 2. We're to seek first the kingdom of Christ, Matthew 6, 33. We're to be transformed in the renewing of our minds by the mercy of Christ, to live our lives as sacrifices, Romans 12, 1 and 2. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're called to seek the king and his kingdom in all things, shining as lights in the dark world that we live in through our love for others, not love for the world. We are called to love the world, but not to be lovers of the world. We are called to understand that the cross of Christ is the power of God for all who believe that the center of a Christian worldview is a suffering Messiah. And that looking for life, we find it in actually giving ourselves away. That we are called to be imitators of God and to walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us. We're called to have a gospel trajectory in all of our lives and all of our love. This is the distinction of disciples. This is what makes us different. So that in a world that is arguing over different forms of power and applications of power in every area of life, we can engage those, world, uh, those parts of our world faithfully. We can lead in those parts of our world fully. That we can be leaders in economic spheres. That we can be leaders in business spheres. We can be leaders in our neighborhoods. We can be leaders in political, uh, 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 political ideology. We can be leaders in education, but we do it distinctively. We don't fight with the weapons of the world. We don't promote hate and bitterness. We love as we've been loved and we learn to give our lives away because our Savior has done that for us, given his life as a ransom for many. We forgive as we've been forgiven. We do good to those who hate us. We divest as a form of eternal kingdom investment. We die so that others can live because we have a Savior that has loved us in that way.
Who do you say Jesus is? Not just with your lips, but with your life. I'm going to pray for us. And I want to invite you, if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you don't know him personally, you only know him partially, we want you to put your faith in Christ. If you are on a journey of investigation, please join our Alpha class. We are not, we're partnering with Alpha class. Please jump in on that. Or if you know somebody who is, if you have an area of your life where you want to grow in living with Jesus as Lord, in your finances, in your business, in your relationships, your marriage, or your home, we want to pray for you and encourage you. You're not alone. If you want to join and learn more of how we can be radical lovers of all of our neighbors and neighborhoods in this city, then get more involved in this church. All of us have different gifts to be deployed in different ways. And after I close in prayer, you're going to hear the fruit of one of Callan's gifts. This is a new song. Many of you might have heard it in our Scripture and Song podcast that came out, but he helped write it and he produced it. And it's an example of someone using their gifts for the king and his kingdom during this season. And everybody in here has different gifts that can be discovered, developed, and deployed for the king. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you truly are the Son of God, that you, you will return in power and in glory as emperor of emperors and king of kings. Until that day, Lord, help us to know you, not just partially, but really personally. We pray that we'd be a people who are quick to repent and acknowledge our need for your grace and your mercy, allowing you to serve us. We pray for forgiveness as a people that we have too often aligned our worldviews with the powers of this culture, whether political, economical, social, educational, or otherwise. And we haven't faithfully served you in these realms because we've allowed those to define us. We return back to you, Lord Jesus. Teach us to love as you have loved and to serve as you have served us. Help us to set our minds on the things of the kingdom and to come to you continuously begging for mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.